0: Let me offer a quick word of prayer. Our great God, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We also thank you for its witness to us that points us to Jesus Christ, your son and our savior and Lord. And now this morning, Lord, we ask that you would add a blessing to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of your word. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see the beauty of your gospel. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If I could this morning, uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to uh, start this sermon with a Uh, semi-apology. The reason is because as uh, Presbyterians, we're not known to be people that are full of feelings. Uh, But this morning in the text from 1 Thessalonians, we'll pick up where we ended last week. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about his feelings for the Thessalonian church, and I know Presbyterians, we're not, were not necessarily big on Felix. Now, I will say, uh, my church back home in, in New Jersey, nobody's watching this. But I say, you guys do a little bit better job of being uh, you know, full of joy and, and uh, a little more feelings than our church back at home. Sometimes I wonder, did I become a Presbyterian because of the theology? Or my temperament is one that didn't fit in a more you know, charismatic, very emotional church. And so I became a Presbyterian because I was very stoic, like you guys. Apostle Paul is going to talk about his feelings. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and he talks about how he longs to be with the church in Thessalonica. How he longs to be with this new church plant, essentially, that he and his missionary team, Timothy and Sylvanus, they helped plant. They went proclaiming the gospel, they started this church, and for whatever reason, talk a little bit about that later. Uh, Paul and his missionary team have been separated from this church and he's writing to them and he's telling them, I really, really want to get back and be with you. He longs for the church. And just to break down where we're going, uh, two main points. One, we'll see how the Apostle Paul, how he longs for the church or how he shows that he longs for the church. And then secondly, we look at what Paul longs for the church how he longs for them, and what he longs for them. Before we start with the how or what, though, briefly, it might be important to talk about why. Why does the Apostle Paul write with such strong feelings about this church? On one hand, as you already said, it's because he has a deep connection with this church. If you plant a church, you have a very strong connection with the people that you help plant, the people you preach to, and they were converted Heard the gospel through your lips and the work of your missionary team. You're going to have a very close connection to him. So the why is because he just loves them and he wants to be with them. But also, if you know the Apostle Paul in any of his other writings, the Apostle Paul is also always defending his ministry. Because there's always people around trying to say Paul's not really that great of an apostle or minister. And so here, Paul, again, is defending his ministry to the church in Thessalonica. Now, he's defending his ministry, one, for internal reasons, but secondly, for external reasons. Internally, you've got to remember these are all new Christians, and their father in the faith, shall you say, has been with them, and now he's gone, and they don't see him for quite some time. And so, internally in the church, there may be some problems because their father in the faith is gone. Questions where is Paul? He was supposed to be leading us, serving us, ministering to us, and all of a sudden, he's not there. There's internal reasons why Paul has to defend his ministry, but there's also external reasons why he has to defend his ministry and talk in such great ways about how he longs for the church. Because externally, when the church is weak, there will always be those, as Jesus and others would call them, wolves, surrounding the sheep, looking to pull the sheep away from the fold. So Paul writes to these Christians, he writes to this church in Thessalonica, and he wants to defend his ministry from internal pressures, internal issues, and also the external issues. Now we can talk about Paul and how he shows that he desires to physically be with the church in Thessalonica. We see in verses 17 and in 18 of chapter 2, I know I spanned it two chapters, But we see in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2 that Paul uses very excessive language to talk about how much he wants to be with them and how hard he has tried to get back to them. Paul writes things like this, that we were torn away in person, but not in heart. In other words, he says, you were out of sight, but you weren't out of mind. Paul uses hyperbolic language. He says, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to meet with you face to face. This is Paul's, shall we say, flowery language to talk to the church and talk about, I tried really, really hard to get back, but I couldn't. You can think of it this way. If you read any poetry or older poetry, or if you were a poet yourself, you may have wrote a poem at some point to a love interest of yours, maybe in high school or something. And you wrote this you know, very flowery, overly hyperbolic language about how much you love this person. You write it that way with hyperbolic language because you want them to really know I really want to date you. This is the excessive language that Paul uses to this church. I tried again and again. I have great desire to be with you. I endeavored more eagerly to be around you. And yet Paul says I was hindered. He says, I want to be face to face. I want to be face to face with you as the church that I helped plant In other words, Paul is saying there is a ministry of presence that you need and I desire to do for you. Obviously, Paul wasn't thinking about the ministry of screens. But there may be something to it that Paul can say to us. There is something good about the ministry of presence. That you were called to meet personally with people. Sharing the gospel and ministering to them. There's some people who say that the church is going the way of, you know, online church. This is the new fad. I don't think Paul was thinking about this new fad, but I think he does have something to say. That if you are a minister of the gospel and an an elder in God's church, we should have a desire to see you face to face. That also extends to you. As the congregation, it should irk you sometimes when you can't make it to church on Sunday. Sometimes you're hindered for sickness and other things, but it should irk you. I want to meet with the people of God. And this is what Paul is saying to the church here in Thessalonica. I want to see you face to face. The letter that I'm sending is not enough. I want to be with you. And Paul shows by his excessive language how much he longs to be with the church. And Paul lets them know, but I was hindered. I want to be there, but I was hindered from getting to you. Now, the thing is, we don't know exactly what hindered Paul. There's options out there, but we don't know for sure what hindered Paul from getting there, but he was hindered. Now, this hindering is not just an ancient problem. The hindering of ministers and others getting to the people they're trying to minister to is not just an ancient problem. You I'm sure at some point you've heard missionaries come and speak to the church or may have seen a video of a missionary who says, man, we we planted this church in X country and we wanted to get back. But things hindered us from getting there where the government, maybe the government found out that there were Christian missionaries and barred them from getting back. Maybe they were just simply issues with their visa or flight or whatever the case may be. Maybe they were, sometimes you've heard this, maybe they were detained. They got back to the city where their church was, where the people they were ministering to was, and they were detained by authorities. They were hindered. What Paul is writing, it may sound ancient, but it's not an ancient problem. Many of the people we support and pray for deal with being hindered from getting to the people they care for and want to minister to we don't know what hindered paul but we do know who hindered paul in verse 18 of chapter chapter 2 excuse me paul says what satan hindered me from getting there we don't know what it was but we know who was behind the hindrance and he said satan was the one who hindered me from getting back to you i've already made fun of presbyterians earlier, I'm going to make fun of Presbyterians a little bit of Again, if you don't mind, but I'm making fun of myself as a Presbyterian, so I don't feel so bad. And maybe as Presbyterians, we don't talk about the reality of Satan often enough. Satan is always trying to hinder the proclamation of the gospel. There may be various reasons why people are hindered to getting to their church. There may be various reasons why missionaries are are hindered to get back to the country where they're serving. We don't know what the reasons are all the time. They're various, but the one behind it is always clear. The one who wants to hinder the gospel is Satan. Paul says, Satan hindered me from getting back to you. And yet, though Satan is the one to hinder, there's a writer, Gene Gree. I think he couches the reality of Satan and his hindering Of the minister in the church this way, he says, Satan is not an omnipotent adversary, but he is a real adversary. He's real. And he's always working to hinder the proclamation of the gospel. But Green, I think, puts it right, but he's not omnipotent. He may stall for a minute, but our God that we serve is greater and he will help get his ministers and missionaries and his people through. that The gospel may be proclaimed. It's interesting, the word used here in verse 18 that Paul uses for hindered. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about the idea of being hindered from the proclamation of the gospel and it talked about. We talked about a storm. I use my job as a longshoreman to talk about the storm blocking the way and making it difficult. Here, the word that's translated as hindered in English is a different word that talks about slits in the road that a city may make when another military force is coming its way. So Paul uses these two words very closely. One on one hand, he says, it's like a storm getting in my way to proclaim the gospel here. He says, it's almost like we're marching into Satan's territory to proclaim the gospel. And he makes ditches in the road, making it difficult. Satan may use various means to hinder the gospel. Once again, as Green says, but he's not omnipotent. Our God can overcome any storm that gets in the way of the gospel. He can make a path through any ditches in the road trying to hinder its way for the gospel. Either way, Paul talks about this hindrance, but we know that Paul constantly is trying to get back to the church that he cares for. This is how he shows that he longs for them. They know that he longs for them because of how much he's worked to get back. But we also know how Paul longs for them by the way in which Paul describes the church in Thessalonica. In verse 17, Paul calls them brother. Brothers, I tried to get back to you. Writer Jeffrey Weema, I think he puts it, Right. This way, he says, you know, brother ought to be viewed not merely as an epistolary convention to mark a transition, but also as an important expression of deep affection that the apostle has for his Thessalonian converts. Brother is just more than a word that's being thrown around by the apostle Paul. When he calls him brother, he means it. Here in church, we may call each other brother and sister. Now It's a nice title to have. Brother so and so, sister so and so. But when we say those words, anytime we call somebody brother and sister, we should be reminded that it means a lot more than just the title. We are a family and we are the family of God. When Paul calls them brothers, he's telling them how much he cares for them. This idea is a family term. It's interesting. Even in verse 17, when Paul talks about when he says, listen, I've been torn away from you. The word itself means I've been orphaned from you. Paul feels like family with this church to the point when he says, when I couldn't get back to you, I feel like we've been orphaned from one another. Like we were two brothers that were split into two different homes. We were orphaned away because we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This idea of being a brother, though, is I think, is multifaceted. Paul is saying a lot by calling these folks here in Thessalonica by calling them brother. On one hand, there's the cultural or you can say ethnic diversity to call someone brother. Remember, Paul is an Israelite; he's Jewish. Thessalonians are largely Gentiles. They're pagans. They are vastly different culturally from Paul. And yet Paul says, but we're still brothers. In this church, I can look around and see, and obviously by the guy who's standing up before you today, we are all culturally different. We might not look the same. Music may be different. One of the elders Loves to jab that I like rap and he likes country music. Now, he makes me listen to country, but I can't get him to listen to any rap. But either way, <laughs> we're culturally and ethnically different, but yet we are. That's my brother. When Paul uses the word brother. He's talking about something great that two people culturally different are still part, shall we say, of even a greater family. There's the cultural diversity, but even there's the religious diversity. Paul and the Thessalonians got to Christ by different avenues. Paul, as an Israelite, has read the Old Testament. He's an expert in the Old Testament. So when he looks to Christ, he sees the fulfillment of the promised Messiah that he's been reading about the whole time. Thessalonians have not read the Old Testament. Maybe some did, but the reality is most of them probably did not. All the ideas of the Messiah may be new to them, but at the very least, they knew this one that Paul came proclaiming. He is the one that provides forgiveness to me and he provides salvation that our old deaf, dumb idols could not provide for us. We religiously have come to Christ by different means. And yet he says we're brothers. Same thing happens in any local church. Serving as an elder, it's always exciting for membership interviews because we hear all these different stories like how in the world did you get to Christ? There's some who were just raised as Presbyterians from the day they were born. Their first word was the catechism. (laughs) And then there's people that. Only God knows how they heard the gospel. Brothers and sisters said, I was born in the most pagan family you can think of. My parents don't even like that. I go to church now and I'm 40. And yet here I am. Want to join your local church. And Paul calls them brother. He's talking about the cultural difference. But there's also such a great religious difference of how they got to Christ. And Yet Paul says, you're my brother. How do they know that he longs to see them? Because the way he talks about them. And that's something for us to remember. We all come from various different walks of life, but under the reign of Christ, God is all of our father. So now when you leave today and you say brother and sister, remember the depth of meaning that comes with it. Paul calls them brother, but Paul also talks lofty about him in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2 when he says, "You know you are my hope, you're my joy." And you're my crown. This three word phrase, hope, joy, crown, is usually something Paul would hold to the side to talk about Christ. And yet here he uses it to talk about this church. You're my hope, my joy and my crown. And he says, you're my hope, my joy, my crown. Verse 19, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. When I thought about this, I thought about the parable of the the talents. Now, it's not an exact connection, but it's the way I thought about it. The king goes away and he leaves talents with his servants. And when he comes back, he wants the servants to take the talents that they were given and show it back and say, look how I multiplied what you had given me. I was faithful with what you had given me. And I think Paul here is almost saying something similar. The king, Jesus, has left you, the Thessalonians, with me. And now when he returns at the coming of the king, who am I going to present to show that I've been faithful in ministry? I'm going to show you. I'll present you as my hope and my joy and my crown to our great king Jesus to show him. See, I've been faithful. You can only do that with a church you really love. Church that you long to be with a church you care for when you say I present you as my gifts. To the king to show him that I've been faithful in ministry. Paul shows them so much how he longs for them by using great excessive language to talk about how he wanted to get back. But also, by the way, he talks about them. My hope and my joy and my crown and you are my family. We see how Paul longs for them. But then secondly, we see what Paul longs for this church. Remember, Paul Desires to be with them. And because he can't, he says, that's fine. I'll go ahead and send Timothy so that he may encourage you. And so what does Paul send Timothy for? Paul sends Timothy so that the Thessalonians would continue and persevere in the faith. And I would add in the midst of affliction and persecution. He longs that they would be built up as he sends Timothy, that they would be built up in their most holy faith. And he says, I sent him to establish and exhort you. Why does Paul tell these Thessalonians that they need strength? Because they're in the midst of persecution. He's concerned. Chapter 3, verse 3. He's concerned. He says, I don't want any of you to be moved by these afflictions. One commentary, Leon Morris, he says, the peculiar difficulties which they faced as Christians. In the midst of a secular society which acknowledges a different set of values. Paul knew that this church, especially because they were new converts, that in the midst of affliction there was a good chance that they may walk away from the faith because of the difficulties that surround them. Reality is there's a good chance the afflictions were probably not physical harm. Now it may have led to physical harm at some point. But the bigger issue for these new converts was being ostracized from the surrounding society. You gotta remember, here you have a group of new converts. They have left paganism, they have left their old culture, they have left their old ways of thinking, particularly religious. They are now a part of this new group of weird people who feed on the body and blood of Christ and hear this weird God come and proclaim the death and resurrection of this Jewish man. And now the father of the faith has left them. He does not come back. And so these people are in a weird position right now. And the reality is it's going to be easier for them to go back to their old way of life than than remaining where they are in the church. Society is infringing upon them, pushing in the walls on them. And Paul knows if I don't get back or if I don't send someone, which is why he sends Timothy, there's a good chance they may walk away from the faith. Paul says, You may be tempted to leave. The temptation is not one of morality. It's not a moral temptation, but it's, it's a temptation of apostasy. He knows the temptation to apostatize, and particularly to apostatize for the sake of comfort. Once again, I stole a lot from Leon Morris. He says, you know, once the faith is denounced, the persecution would have ended immediately. If if all you would do is just stop giving yourselves to the church, if you would stop living life according to the doctrines of Christ, life would get so much easier for you. There's something there for us. We are probably not getting physically harmed because we're Christians. But sometimes we may be ostracized because of the faith we hold on to. And the reality is there are going to be some days where it is just easier to give up the faith than to keep pressing on. When society looks at you weird. And especially, I would say, for those who are younger either by actual physical age or those who are younger in the faith, where all of this is just vastly new. It's going to be easier just to leave. It's always easier when life gets hard. Paul says, I know you're going to be tempted to leave the faith. and So I long to come to you and I send Timothy on ahead of me so that he can exhort you and build you up in your most holy faith. Don't walk away from the faith for the sake of comfort. But even when it is easy. To just simply walk away. We have one who has already gone before us and dealt with the tempter on our behalf and succeeded. In chapter three, verse five of what we've read. Paul calls Satan the tempter. The same one who hinders the proclamation of the gospel is also the one who tempts these converts to leave the gospel. Paul says, don't be fooled by Satan, the tempter. There's a great story in Matthew chapter four that we all know. Where Jesus is tempted by Satan. And when is he tempted by Satan? When he is at his weakest. He's been fasting for quite some time. He is tired. He is weary. He is exhausted. And Satan basically tells him, listen, if you would just give up who you are, it'd be a lot easier for you. And you can have all this. I will give to you. Jesus was tempted by Satan, but we have one. Our Lord who has conquered Satan and overcome and was vastly successive. Successful against the tempter. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every way was tempted as we are, but did not sin. Jesus has already gone before us and he knows that it may be easier to give up who you are as a Christian for the sake of comfort. Like the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who's already done that. He's been there. He's done that. He's our example. But even more, he's also the one who empowers us to keep walking in the faith, even when it's more comforting and more comfortable just to give up. What does Paul long for this church? He longs that they would remain faithful. They would remain strong in the faith, in the midst of temptation. I says, if you just give all this up, life would probably be a lot easier. Paul ends in chapter 3, or at least a couple of verses in chapter 3 that we read. Paul ends with, uh, as I continue to make fun of Presbyterians, with a great Presbyterian word of comfort. Paul says in verse 3, to comfort them. When it comes to your afflictions and your persecution and your temptation, we've been destined for this. That's how Presbyterians come for you. They just tell you the way it is. Here we have a church that's weak and hurting and Paul says, that's just the way it is. Paul even goes more and says, we told you that this was going to happen. The reality is, even though those words may not sound very comforting, the reality is that truth is always comforting. Truth is comforting, though it may start as being a very hard pill to swallow. If you've been through any type of really difficult medical issue, now, I'm speaking on behalf of other people because, honestly, I really haven't been through anything that difficult, but... As I've had older people in my family who've gone through cancer and strokes and everything else. If you've ever been in that situation or it's your parent who's been in that situation, the reality is, though you don't want to hear it, you know that truth is really the real comfort you're looking for. You don't want your doctor to lie to you. So, oh, everything's going to be great. Well, you just told me it's stage four. That doesn't sound great. Comforting is when a doctor can tell you this is the reality that's coming down the pike. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. But knowing the truth is a comfort versus somebody lying to you. Paul basically tells this church, I'm going to comfort you, but this is what I'm going to comfort you with the persecution and the afflictions that you're dealing with. I told you it was going to happen. And so you should be prepared. The writer, Gene Gree, puts it this way. He says, you know, Paul is not thinking of a, just a period of persecution which will pass. And then the church will return to normality. Normality is persecution. The theology of suffering was a centerpiece in early Christian teaching. I like this. Unlike many muddled modern theologies that promise prosperity and the absence of trouble as a fruit of true faith. In other words, we can say the early church was catechized in a theology of suffering. But Paul gives them another comfort. He says, listen, but we're right there with you. We are right there with you. When things get difficult, we are there with you. Even says for when we were with you, this is uh, verse four. We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction and just at his it has come to pass. And just as you know. Paul comforted by saying this is the reality. Paul comforted by saying we are with you. We are praying with you. Paul comforted them by sending Timothy to exhort them in the faith to encourage them and continue to proclaim the gospel and minister to them. Paul says, I'll comfort you with only this, the truth. Sometimes the faith is going to be difficult. and Yet there's even a greater comfort than the fact that things are going to be difficult. The greater comfort is this one We have, as Paul would say before, brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another. When you see particularly a younger Christian struggling with the faith, our job is not to look down at them, but to encourage them and say, keep walking in the faith. That's the comfort. And then even the greater comfort than one another is who we look to. Every Sunday, every time you open scripture, every time you talk to a brother and sister in Christ, we are always attempting to point to Jesus Christ, our Lord, as our great comfort to know it may be difficult today, but we know we serve one who's already conquered all the persecution and affliction that you could handle. He's gone through it. And he's conquered it. Apostle Paul shows them how he longs for them. The Apostle Paul tells them exactly what he longs for them. That this church of new converts, that this group of God's people would be encouraged and strengthened in the faith in the midst of difficulty. Let me give this uh, final word and this uh, final charge to you. I think that we can pull from what Paul has written to this church This text, on one hand, could be specifically used for missionaries, ministers, and church planners, but the reality is this text is for all of us. May we as a church long to be with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in order to encourage and exhort one another to build each other up in the most holy faith, for we live in a society that opposes the truth of Christ. And even more, may we look to Christ in the midst of affliction, knowing that he has gone before us and empowers us by his spirit to persevere in the faith given to us. Now let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we praise you for we know that you are with us in the midst of affliction and in the midst of difficulty and even persecution. And we praise you that you have conquered Satan, the tempter and the one who attempts to hinder the proclamation of the gospel. So we don't stand in our own strength. But we look to you, our Lord and King. Help us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.